0: Welcome to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. I'm Frank Roy Correa, the host of the show, and I'm happy that you can join and listen. If you have listened to previous episodes, thank you for coming back. If this is the first time you're listening, welcome, and I hope you continue to be a listener to the show. This podcast discusses three topics, movies, sports, and politics. Each episode will be dedicated to one of these topics. Today's show will center on politics. The show is available on Apple Podcasts. Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, and CastBox. You can find it under Let Me Bend Your Ear Podcast. Please subscribe to the show on any of these podcast apps so you can receive new episodes direct to your device when they become available. Whichever podcast app you use, please rate and review the show. This is a very important and simple way you can help the show reach a wider audience. You can also get the show from our website at any time. At www.letmebenyourear.com. Coming up on the show today, I will be speaking with Dr. Peggy McLeod, who currently is the Vice President of Education and Workforce Development at Unidos US, a bipartisan nonprofit organization that works with Latino communities across the United States. Dr. McLeod is currently in the Texas Regional Office. She has specialized in the field of special education. For her entire career this led her to become a political appointee in the clinton administration where she worked at the department of education's office of special education and rehabilitative services from 1995 through 2001. we discuss her career and her experiences working in a cabinet level department before we get to my conversation with dr mcleod the big news of the week was that justice anthony kennedy is retiring from the supreme court Justice Kennedy was appointed by President Reagan in 1988. He was a third choice of President Reagan after the first two options, Robert Bork, whose nomination was rejected by the Senate amid controversy regarding his civil rights record, and Douglas Ginsburg, who withdrew his name after admitting to marijuana use. His better-known decisions include siding with the majority in the case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, where he, along with Justice David Souter and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, wrote the plurality opinion upholding Roe v. Wade. He sided with the four liberal justices and wrote the majority opinion in Kennedy versus Louisiana, which rejected the implementation of the death penalty in a case of child rape. He also wrote the majority opinion in the highly controversial Citizens United versus FEC, which essentially states that corporations have the same political free speech rights as individuals. I believe this is one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in decades, but that is a subject for a different show. Justice Kennedy had detractors from both the left and the right, which to me is a good indication that he made decisions based on the merits, not the political wins of the day. And now, my conversation with Dr. Peggy McLeod.
1: All right, I'm speaking with Dr. Peggy McLeod. Uh, Thanks, Peggy, for coming on the show to discuss... um, what you've been doing and what your career has been like. I wanted to have you on um, to discuss specifically your time in D.C. Uh, when you worked at the Department of Education. But before we get into that, I just wanted to kind of get into your background a little bit, what uh, what uh, your background is as far as what led you through the road that ultimately ended up you being in Washington doing that particular job.
2: Sure, Frank. So my um, interest uh, in education began right after I graduated from college with a degree in economics and I realized I didn't want to pursue economics as a career um, path and so I decided to work as an economist a couple of years and then decided to go into education and I started by becoming a Montessori teacher Um, and Montessori is really what gave me the foundation of and sort of the values that are um, mine in education, which is that um, it's, it's important that you look at each child as an individual and not have expectations or preconceived notions about what children can't do, because a, um, a lot of teachers do, and they look at a kid who um, is maybe a different race or has a disability or is learning to speak English and make assumptions based on that. And one of the things that I learned to do was never to do that. So I worked as a Montessori teacher for a while, um, and then um, moved. Decided to move in Puerto in my native Puerto Rico, um, and then decided to move to Washington D.C. to pursue some some opportunities uh, that I knew I would be able to to get there. Um, in terms of work um, and then furthering my education. Um, I had just finished my master's degree um, in special education at New York University and um, uh, started working in the area where eventually I wanted to land in, which was working with um, English learners, kids who are, are learning English um, with disabilities. and so um moved I moved to DC started working in the DC public schools um was very lucky to have the opportunity to enroll in a doctoral program where um I was able to to study this uh, this field and um I was working um in uh the district uh, school system and um that's when I got tapped uh to go into the the Clinton administration
1: yeah, that's part of And what was what was the thing about special education? Because I know that's your specialty. What was that? What drew you to that as to be your 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 specialty and what you what you spent your career working on?
2: I think it was goes back to the experience in the Montessori, uh, specifically in one Montessori school that had a number of um, kids with disabilities. I worked in what's called a primary program, so it's for kids between the ages of two-and-a-half and and six. Um, I know primary is usually elementary school, but that's what it's called in Montessori. Um, So I had these little kids, and because the upper school, the private school that received a lot of kids with disabilities, um, the Montessori program had some as well. and. you know, this was a long time ago, and some of the moms have been told that their kids, uh, I remember one mom who had, uh, whose son was epileptic, Hector, I'll never forget that kid, and, you know, after three years, Hector was ready to move to first grade, and I, I really couldn't understand what the big deal was. Pediatrician had told her, put him in an institution, but Hector was this funny, you know, you could tell he was an engineer from the age of three. Um and he did great, and I had a bunch of kids like that who um if were were had disabilities, kids with autism uh kids with c p and i maybe because I was so naive, i just didn't have it wasn't like oh, these kids aren't going to be able to do anything I just taught them the rest the way I taught the other kids and you know made some some accommodations for them um and they did great, and so that was. I thought, well, I want to. I want to go into this field. I want to look at how you can make these kids, how you can make them all successful, you know. And that was my interest. And then in moving here to the United States, I also wanted to add that element of, okay, the kids who are also learning English um, and and have a disability. What what can we do with with those kids?
1: Uh, and so when you uh, you had indicated you were, when you were tapped to be in the Clinton administration, I wanna had two questions. So first, how did that take place or how did they reach out to you? And secondly, once that happened, um, was it a tough decision for you? Because I would imagine that um, being kind of like on the ground and really doing the job, you know, directly with children, I'm sure is very fulfilling and rewarding. I wanted to – it was tough to – consider balancing doing that with going into a bigger role in an administration where you could deal with other things, maybe not so much directly. Um, How was that when when that uh, decision came or when that opportunity came for you?
2: Well, interestingly enough, I had not been... I had not been tuned into politics not let me put it that way I was um but um I wasn't contribute I didn't contribute to the Clinton campaign or anything like that I, I didn't work at the campaign which is how a lot of people end up getting jobs in in the different administrations um I was friends with um the director of the Office of Bilingual Education Minority Languages Affairs um uh, back then it was called that um, now, it's got a different name, um, Dr. Jean Garcia, um, and I was friends with Jean and his wife, and Jean talked to who would become my boss, um, Judy, Judy Human, who was the Assistant Secretary for Special Education and Rehabilitative Services, which is a pretty large... Um, office at the Department of Education. Um, she invited me to participate on a panel because they were starting the work of um, the reauthorization of the idea of IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Law, which is the law that governs um, special education in this country. And she invited me to participate in, in a private discussion with advocates and and locals and um, so I went to that and then I I don't I think uh, Jean recommended me to her and she hired me. Um, You know, the the second question I I, at that point, I was working as part of a team doing evaluations Actually, I take that back. I was working in the bilingual department in the, in, in the District of Columbia Public Schools, and I really enjoyed my job, but I knew that this would be a unique experience that I may never have the opportunity to go through this again. So, it was not at all a tough decision, and, you know, when I consulted with friends and families, everybody was like, oh, go for it, you know, because – um again, it was a really unique opportunity. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, I, I wasn't politically, you know, that savvy, um, um, but it, it, it was a fabulous job.
1: Yeah, no, that actually leads into my next question. So what um, when you took the job, so what did the role entail? What did you do day to day? What was it that you were tasked or what? department was tasked to do as far as what you were involved in
2: well my day to day was um, uh, part partly was community outreach Um, so I was working um, not only I was working with with uh, different organizations that support children with disabilities and adult with disabilities because that particular office at the Department of Education is, is uh, unique in the sense that it's got also the areas, the, the, it's, it's got um, two offices, it's, there's, there's the Office of Special Education, so that deals with, um, with uh, you know, the pre-K to 12, um, you know, high, up to high school. And then there's two offices, one that does research mostly on adult, edu- um, I'm sorry, adult disabilities, and then the rehab offices. That provides funding for local rehabilitation efforts for adults with disabilities, so I really got the opportunity to expand my knowledge base and to begin working with advocates um both for children and for adults with disabilities. Um, a lot of my work was outreach to the Latino community um, There were not a lot of Latinos at the um at the department at that time, and so that was also a really, really interesting part of my experience. I ended up doing some very interesting work um around women with disabilities. Um and that that I, that was unexpected but really a, a big part of of um of uh, what I ended up doing, you know, just things that come along and then you end up working in these areas, um, and then finally, the other thing that um, was really great about this was of uh, this experience was that i I got to lead the work with mexico on on, on our office and then had the opportunity to travel to Mexico a lot. To deal with the um, Secretary of Public Education, the, the office um, that, <coughs> excuse me, leads public education for Mexico. Um, and so uh, I was, I was, you know, I traveled to Mexico, Mexico City, several times during the year, and um, also got to go to Oaxaca for a convening of indigenous people with disabilities. Um, from across the United States and um, and Mexico, and then that you know that that was a very fulfilling part of, of my work as well.
1: Wow, that's, unbe- that's unbelievable opportunities there. Um, and as you were doing this work, it sounds like obviously you you enjoyed it immensely. Did you find that there were any issues? Uh, obviously, being a political appointee, was were there things? Uh, things that were maybe frustrating or things that were challenges because of where you were doing this work, or was it something where you were able to kind of do this and not have that impact you at all?
2: Well, I think the most challenging part of this, um, you know, as a political appointee, you have a lot of um – uh I was going to say you have you have a lot of flexibility because you're not tied to a specific program or to a specific set of responsibilities that are part of a role that the career folks do you know so they have their set you know you're you're the person who um has the who leads these number x number of states and that's your job and so um there's more flexibility for um um an appointee to sort of define with, you know, his or her supervisor define what that job job looks like I think the frustrating part of it is the frustrating part of dealing with bureaucracies you know which is that they move really really slowly um, as an appointee and and you'll see this across different administrations there's a little bit of a sense of urgency because you know that your time is limited and if you want to achieve lasting impact um, you have to you feel like you have to move quickly and that's not the way bureaucracy Bureaucracies move, Um, so I I think that our approach um, was in some administrations. There's a clear, clear distinction between the political appointees and the career folks. Um, My, um, this the secretary I worked for, uh, Secretary Dick Riley, um, did not make that distinction, and neither did my boss. I mean, it was clear that the uh the the level of respect for the career folks was very high they knew they knew how to get things done and so um um you know they 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 often were as 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 um, frustrated as we were but yeah i would say just working within a bureaucracy and you know that's hardly unique to the federal government so
1: Right. So, basically, and this is this is good insight because this is really what I wanted to why I wanted to have you on because that's a that's a good point that I never knew about. So, in at least in the department that you were working in, the, the the best way to kind of get things done was really to have the political appointees work hand in hand with the career people there. Uh, to in the, so that's the best possible way to get things done as opposed to it being adversarial or, or kind of walled off between the two types of uh, people that were working there.
2: Absolutely. The other administrations where at some department or the other or, you know, or even the entire government where that has happened, I assure you that things slowed down to a crawl because the political appointees aren't doing the direct work. You know, they're not doing they're doing heavy lifting but it's it's of a different nature you know um and it's the career folks who who get stuff done so if you antagonize those folks if you don't work with them um and i and i and i have enormous amount of respect for for the career people i mean they they keep the government going it's for me it's very sad to hear bureaucrats bashed um and and you know they, these were these are really hardworking committed people, and so um, that's how you have to treat them. You know you just treat them the way you'd want them to to treat you, and that is with respect and understanding, and a sense of we're all in this together, uh, and um, and definitely doing things to improve um, the education of all our kids.
1: Absolutely, and I wanted to go back to something you said a little earlier. You had said when you had had decided to take this job that you were not really politically savvy. Um, What did you learn in this role, and and how did you interact, um, not even so much within your department, but with other departments maybe in the administration? What did you notice, and what did you learn from being in that environment and kind of learning about the bureaucracy and how departments work and maybe um, differences between how your department worked and other departments in the administration worked?
2: Well, it was interesting. Um, it was interesting for a couple of reasons. Let me go back to something I mentioned before, which is my experience as a Latina. Um, President Clinton made a concerted effort to hire large numbers of Latino, uh, Latinos um, as uh, appointees. And so there was a pretty, probably the biggest cohort of Latinos um, ever um, as, as, well, at, uh, up to that point as appointees. So there was a sense of camaraderie across different departments just because um we um were were sort of you know, this is the last the first time that there had been such large numbers of appointees that we that were all Latino. So there was something of a common I don't want to call it a common agenda, but there was a common understanding of that, you know, we were a, a pretty unique cohort in that sense. Um and so I do remember having really, um, uh, you know, great conversations with my, my Latino colleagues from other departments. I also got to do a lot of work through the work that I did with women with disabilities. I got to work with essentially almost all of the agencies in the federal government because we tapped into each one of them. Um, we wanted to do, uh, what had never been done before, which, which, It was an internal, international forum on women with disabilities, which happened in 1997. And for that, we went, um, to different departments to get their support. So I remember sitting with Secretary Shalala at the time, you know, seeking her support. Um, um, uh, I got to work with First Lady. Um, Hillary Clinton at the time because she was involved she was the the one of the chairs for this I got to meet Madeline Albright because she was another chair for um, this event um, which was, for me um, was really uh, very transformative personally because um it was just incredible the power of of these women that came from all over the world um so it 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 I I did have I was very lucky in that I was able to work across different departments and get to know the culture of those departments um and get to know a little bit of the leaders of those departments um and so um you know that that kind of um was a way to broaden the horizons of my political world at the time and um, see what other appointees were doing in, in, in other um, in other departments.
1: Wow, that's great to hear because one of the goals of this, this show, um, you know, my interest in politics has been since I was a little kid, so I was a political nerd. So to hear, and that's the stories that I think you don't really get to hear very often. That's why I'm glad I got to talk to you because it's, it's those people that work behind the scenes that you never hear about um that are passionate about getting things done, and it's not really about a a ideological or political reason it's because they it's the right thing to do and It's good to hear those stories about the people that really make this work uh because I think there's a lot of positive stories to be told there as opposed to obviously. Uh, with the polarization we have now, I mean, one of the other goals of the show too is for me to cut through kind of the polarization. That's something I really despise, and and to hear what you're saying about this is all the things that I think people need to hear because I think this is this is the real work that's getting done every day that nobody knows about.
2: Yes, I know your political interest. I've been discussing politics with you since since just about when you were a kid. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's great to hear, and that's why I'm glad uh, to to talk to you about this. So when When you left or when it, when your tenure ended um when the administration ended um what did you do next after that and how did how did your political experience in that department uh shape and inform what you did going forward after that?
2: Well, first of all, um, I have to say, I didn't do it for this reason, but it was great on my resume when I actually was looking for a job. I stayed at the administ- with the administration until um the the bitter end and um y- you know um walked out on the twenty first of january uh, i guess um President Bush was sworn in i think on the twentieth and so um and so i you know was started looking for a job and the, um, one of the people in DC Public Schools who was heading up, uh, who was assistant, uh, secretary for the, for special education, um, called me up and said, you know, I know that you're, you're not in the department anymore. Do you want to come back and work here? So, so I did. I went back there and, and worked, um, worked there for, for about a year or so. And I know
1: and now sort of- you're, oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, and of course, having that experience is valuable because you know it gives you a different perspective on what's happening in the department. It doesn't give you an edge. If, for example, we applied for a grant, but it did. You know, I mean, it wasn't like my name was on it, and so they're going to fund it. But it did give. It, it, I got, I had a better idea of okay, this is how this this is handled. You know. Um, maybe we include this in the application, we don't include that, you know, that kind of thing.
1: And I know now you're currently in San Antonio, Texas, and would you consider ever – I don't know if you – I know nothing probably would be that expensive in D.C. Would you ever consider or are you doing anything in the political realm now or is it strictly the private sector or or is it a combination of both now?
2: well my current job is 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 at a, a a non-profit and so it by nature we're a non we're bipartisan so um we don't um we don't do and it's a 501c3 so we don't do lobbying or there's very very little bit of lobbying that um those type of organizations are allowed to do um i do remain very um uh i mean i watch Political TV. (laughs) So once you get the bug, you you can't quite you can't lose it. Once you you've lived in D.C. and you know what goes on behind the scenes, as you put it. Once you know what the sort of what that means, you know when a candidate says this or you know um, it it becomes you know it gets into it gets in your blood and you and and you can't really um, get away from it. So. even though my involvement, my political involvement at this point is to support certain candidates, um, particularly here in Texas. Um, uh, you know, I um, financially and by showing up, um, I, the, the, the national politics is just is just in my blood now.
1: No, that's understandable, absolutely. And and can since you work for a nonprofit, just tell everyone where you work and, and what they do, and, and if they can help by donations or anything that you want to um, plug for that organization?
2: Yeah, sure. My um, organization is called Unidos U.S. We were formerly called the National Council of La Raza, and we're the largest uh, Latino advocacy and civil rights organization in the country. Um, But as many civil rights organizations, we have a program branch. And so I head up – uh two of our program we have four programs. one is focused on health, one is focused on housing and wealth building um, and then I have our education programs and our workforce development programs um, and I had those I had those up i've been in this wonderful organization for the past five years um and um got the opportunity to move to San Antonio because we've had an office here for many many years and um even though I was hired our headquarters are in DC and I was hired in DC mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to bring my job here um although I'm still doing the same job um and so that's that's our our organization and you can find more information at U.S.
1: That's great, Peggy. Well, I encourage anyone that's interested uh, to look seek that out further. And uh, I really want to thank you for coming on. I really um, was glad to be able to talk to you about this. I knew you were a person with a unique perspective uh, of the inside workings of, of, of Washington from a certain perspective, so it's great to have you on. And I really, really uh, want to thank you for My politics interest has always been there, but being with you and speaking with you and having that dialogue with you all those years ago kind of fueled that. So I really appreciate that. So it really, really makes me happy to have you on. So thank you so much, Peggy.
2: Oh, Thanks a lot, Frank. It was my pleasure to do it.
0: Thanks again to Dr. Peggy McLeod for coming on the show. If you want to find out more about Unidos US, please visit their website at www.unidosus.org. They are a nonprofit organization, so if you're interested in the work that they are doing, please consider donating. They're also found on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the same handle, We Are Unidos US. You can also find them on YouTube. Just type in Unidos US in the search and subscribe to their channel. Let me know your thoughts about this show or any show that you've listened to previously. Again, the website is www.letmebendyourear.com. Please subscribe to the show on any of the following podcast apps, Apple Podcast, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, or CastBox. Please follow the show's YouTube channel at Let Me Bend Your Ear Podcast. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is Pod. If you want to email me directly with any questions or any thoughts about any of the shows you've listened to or suggestions for any future shows, please email me directly at bendyourearpodcast at gmail.com. I also want to take a moment to thank those that are listening to the show. One thing that I have learned quickly is that it is not as easy as you would think to get information on how a podcast is doing. I have looked at the numbers regarding traffic to the show's feed, and they have increased week over week. I was very happy to see that. The numbers were higher than I expected, which was great, and reminded me that most podcast listeners, me included, are passive listeners. You subscribe to the show, listen to it, and will never comment about it at all. My goals are to one, grow this show, and two, attract great guests to create compelling content for you to listen to. So again, those who are checking out the show and listening, thank you very much. Another thing I've learned early in this process leads me to ask you out there to do two small things for me. Number one, if you could rate and review the show on whatever podcast app you use to listen. For example, Apple Podcasts ranks shows with a popularity metric. Also, if you listen to other podcasts, they will tell you or they will ask you, uh, usually at the beginning and the end of each show, to rate and review their show. Of course, they're looking for five-star reviews. Um, This is important on Apple Podcasts and I'm sure on most other apps as well. Um, You'll hear this specific request from both smaller podcasts trying to build an audience, and shows that already have a large following. As I stated earlier, it's hard to gauge the audience of a podcast, so a great amount of importance and attention is given to shows that generate a lot of reviews and ratings. The second thing I would ask is please share the show on your social media. These two things can be done in less than five minutes, and it will help the growth of the show tremendously. I cannot understate the importance of these two simple things that will greatly impact the show in a positive way. Thanks again for listening, and I hope everyone has a good week and a safe and happy July 4th.